Welcome to the No Normal. The No Normal is a special presentation coming to you from New Music Edmonton. Thank you for joining us for this month's array of conversations, music, and special features. This series is presented in partnership between New Music Edmonton and CJSR Radio. Watch for additional special projects between NME and CJSR in the future, and enjoy the No Normal on their airwaves. You can find the station on Edmonton Radio Dials at 88.5 FM and online at CJSR.com. New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwiskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. For more information about NME's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. I'm your host, Oscar Tsebarth. Welcome to Episode 9 of NME's The No Normal, the penultimate episode of this abnormal season where the weather has spiraled between the oppressive extremes of polar vortexes and heat domes in the span of just a few short months, and we find ourselves emerging from hazy blankets of wildfire smoke. On this month's program, we're pleased to welcome Suzette Chan to our interview team, a great friend of the arts in Edmonton who has curated a portfolio of insightful writings supporting local creators and documenting their works. Here, Suzette Chan turns her attention to composer Catherine Bevan, whose works have been developed and performed in and beyond Edmonton. Bevan is influenced by research in music psychology, and New Music Edmonton has commissioned a piece through our New Music for the No Normal project, sponsored by the Edmonton Arts Council. The result is a solo piano work to the ends of the earth. We'll hear the piece after this conversation between Catherine Bevan and Suzette Chan. So thanks for joining us, Catherine. I was wondering, I, I'm, I'm not a musician myself, and so I'm always interested in how other people who work in other art forms, how they became interested in their art forms. So do you have any memories of when you wanted to, when you knew you wanted to pursue music? I definitely go back a ways, I would say. I am lucky enough to have grown up in a very musical family. Um, my dad is also a composer of choral music, and my mom is a musician as well. So from an early age, I was, at the very least, taught to read music and play music. To a certain degree, I think less than some, I played piano for a little bit before kind of getting tired of that, but music was still very much a part of my life since as long as I can remember, at least. Oh, wow. That must have been lovely. Oh, for sure. And <laughs> I didn't really um, try my hand at arranging or composing until towards the end of high school, I guess. I don't know. I can't remember exactly why I started. I just thought maybe something fun to try finally. I don't know, I kind of ended up liking quite a bit having just the creative process in general and how music is this temporal art that you can really, you know, create a journey with, I suppose, and fell in love with it pretty fast, I guess, after I tried it. And here I am. <laughs> That's really great. So, but you were a handbell performer, right? So how, that is true, how, did, yeah. how did you gravitate to that, that instrument? So my father is a music director at various churches and part of the church I grew up in was a set of handbells. I was five years old at the time. My dad encouraged me to give it a shot. I did quite enjoy the instrument and I've been playing it since I was five. Oh, wow. And so did you, do you feel like you did any compositions for that instrument? Is that part of how you started? Um, that actually was how I got my first, how I first started 
arranging and composing. It was arranging a song or a hymn for, for handbells. And I still write for handbells every now and then. It's a very different musical world from the contemporary composition world, I find. But how, how so? It's very rooted in, in traditional church music, I suppose. It's like almost like irrevocably attached to church music in a lot of ways. Um, in most situations, handbell music has, it's more casual, almost, I don't want to sound demeaning, casual might not be the right word, but it's it doesn't have the same rigorous hundred year history of like cutting edge avant-garde development that other instruments do or other mediums do. It has its own little bubble really. It's very similar, I think, to um, perhaps music for high school band is perhaps a, um, a good way to, I think I can put it. I think it, it's always neat to, you know, work in different worlds with different people, but different uh, mindset. Yeah, 100%. And so you played piano yourself. And so were your, your compositions, it sounds like you started arranging, composing for other people at a young age, or, or were you concentrating on compositions for yourself? I don't, I didn't never really compose very much for myself. It was definitely for other people, I would say. Starting at around um, 16 or 17, so fairly young, but definitely not as young as some. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I want to talk about your new piece, To the Ends of the Earth, you know, the origins of it. Like, first of all, the the title is very evocative to me, but maybe you can tell us what you were thinking about when (laughs) when you titled it. It's going to be a probably pretty long answer, <laughs> um, but it's okay. So the piece is a, a meditative reflection, really, for solo piano. And a important facet of the work is that there is a simple poem, which is part of the notation. And the work is to be improvised, or partially, in a very controlled manner by the performer. It is in... I think a lot of respects, a piece I have written for the performer rather than the audience or writing for myself. It's really a piece for the performer in an attempts for them to explore some meditative, reflective qualities and to put this into music. Um, to the ends of earth is the final line of the poetry. It's a simple poem and it's meant to go through a bit of a meditative journey. The piece starts by asking the performer, what is it that they need right now? And over the course of the piece, it goes from a representation of sensory experiences that many may find comforting, you know, like the um, sounds of birds, um, sight of sunrise, um, that sort of thing. Moving then to the emotional needs of the performer, so being forgiven understood, remembered, healed in any sense of the word. And finally, the final page is more or less um, complete surrender and ego death to ends of the earth is just a reference to what it may feel like to just surrender and have your your soul, your spirit, your mind be lose its individuality and instead be as one with everyone and everything to the ends of the earth, I guess. Wow, that's really beautiful. I really like the word surrender because one of the things, when I was looking at the score, right, it's very open. And I was wondering if it was kind of risky as a composer to leave it that open and, and, and you know, basically surrender that piece to the performer. It's definitely nerve wracking. And it's not something I've done for very long in my compositions. It's pretty new in my style. I first found my compositional voice, so to speak, as someone who wrote very meticulous, um, notated music, very exacting, where I was very aware of what this piece should sound like exactly. And to go from that degree of control to 
a piece that is so open like this is definitely made me a little bit nervous in some ways, but um, was also very freeing. I think I still, writing very meticulous notes music, I came to understand for me personally that what really mattered to me as a composer was to get across this end result, the main idea, the um, the soul, the, the zeitgeist, whatever you want to call it, of the music and the means to get there weren't so important to me. And I came to understand that there, I can take any fragment, any section of my music, and there are a thousand different ways I could have wrote that. And they all would have served the same purpose, essentially. So this piece and a couple other pieces I've done like this are an attempt to have a lot of control over the end result, but to embrace the plurality of means that can be reached to get there, I guess. Oh, wow. What, what caused that shift? It's a good question. I just like to experiment sometimes. I think wanting to try something new and to see where I can push myself and push where I go with my creative energies, I suppose. Nothing in particular. And so if you, if you gave this piece to another performer, <laughs> how, how do you imagine that would turn out? It's um, impossible to say, really. Funnily enough, I think Sahil's interpretation here is so, so similar to a lot of what I had in mind of perhaps how I may have interpreted myself as I, as I was playing this, which is really cool to hear. And of course, there's also some very significant differences that I think are also very incredible for me to hear. Yeah, imagining another player. I don't know. I didn't hear it. <laughs> uh, so were you present in the recording of this at all? I was not. I was actually very much not a part of his practice process, which I think was a good thing. We were in communication, of course. We made sure we were, you know, he had no questions that everything was going well. But given the nature of the work and how personal it is to the performer, I think it's important that I don't taint their own interpretations with whatever I had in mind and that I just let the performers speak for themselves and in a way compose along with me, I think, with this piece. So the first time I heard the recording was when it was finished. And I'm I'm glad it was it was like that. But I had been wondering if it was if the production of it was or or even the composition of it was influenced by the pandemic at all. I have not been able to go to a live show in over a year. And obviously performers have not been able to perform in front of audiences um, in an indoor theater in, in town for quite a while. So I'm wondering if, if any aspect of the pandemic uh, influenced the, the creation of this piece at all. It did, actually. Well, I guess my inspiration for wanting to do a calming, reflective, meditative work in the first place was in a bit of a, to combat at least a little bit of the anxieties that the pandemic does bring upon us all. Another element to pandemic is such a solo isolating experience. And I think this piece, I meant it to kind of tap into those, into the loneliness a little bit, into this solo reflection, the isolation. So I don't consider it a piece that is, you know, specific to this pandemic alone. But I think the um, pandemic definitely led me to wanting to write something like this, so to speak. I'm also curious about your doing some work in virtual performance. Is that virtual reality? Yes. Virtual reality, yeah. And so for you, is there is there a connection between performance and virtual reality? Like, is virtual reality a place where you see performance happening? In short, absolutely. And I think what I'm in particular focused on, maybe so much isn't so much on performance within virtuality, but listening within virtual reality. I am of the firm belief that composing, performing, nor listening to music 
happens in a nutshell. And that there are such a wide degree of variables and intangibles that play a very important part in how a piece is performed and how a piece is experienced in general. And this can include like the mind state of a performer and all these things that will never show up on a piece of a page of notation really, but are important to a specific performance or listening experience. Going to virtual reality, I think it's a very powerful medium for, of course, immersion. And I think a very powerful medium to influence these intangibles, these other different mood states of the participant. Virtual reality isn't just something that you take in like you usually do with music. It's something that you are inside of, that you are interacting with and experiencing. And because of that, I think there's kind of this another layer of material for an artist to make part of their experience. To give a, a more defined example, one of the work I'm brainstorming for right now, virtual reality, um, virtual reality is one which purposely disorientates um, the participant and creates a sense of loss of control. I'm hoping, at least, that this sense of loss of control and disorientation will have them experience the music and the piece differently than if they were just sitting in a chair normally, you know, in a concert hall. That's the idea, at least. That sounds really fascinating. Is this in a platform in, in any way, or is the plan to create a virtual reality world that a, a listener can or a viewer can come and see and experience the piece? Yeah, the hope at least is to just have a simple application that anyone can open up on their own laptop, alone in their rooms. I think that's a I think that's an important medium to target in a way performance situation, whatever you want to call it, people on their own seeking out artistic experiences um, is a very different audience to target than like a concert hall. But I think it's an important one. And I think you can do some pretty interesting things like specifically tapping into that solo experience. I've had a few quote-unquote, been to a number of performances that are entirely online. It is quite different. Like, I don't know, have you have you done that as well? Once or twice, yeah, for sure. What do you feel works best for you taking it in? It can vary, I think, for me personally. Digital transmission of work is, it's quite different from a live experience, and I think the best experiences I've had in that sort of thing are music, which specifically targets that kind of transmission and doesn't attempt to simply treat things as things were. As I do think it's very easy to like, you know, try to live stream a concert, which is clearly meant to be experienced live and truly feel kind of let um, down by it and like, you can tell it's not the way that music was supposed to be experienced, but I also don't believe all music has to necessarily be like that. And that there are ways, you know, music can be specifically made for this kind of transmission environment and can be very interesting in of itself. That was composer Catherine Bevan in conversation with Suzette Chan. We'll continue with Bevan's commission to the ends of the earth. And the following recording was made by pianist Sahil Kug at the Yardbird Sweden Spring. As a member of such groups as the Sahil Kug Trio, Denim Daddies and K-Riz, and as a solo artist, Sahil Kug is highly regarded in Edmonton for his wide range of stylistic understanding, as well as a formidable technical skill. He worked closely with the composer in developing a strategy as the first interpreter of this new work.
To the Ends of the Earth by Catherine Bevan, performed by Sahil Kug, with recording and mastering by Nico Arneas. That work was one of 12 new compositions commissioned by New Music Edmonton in our current season, with assistance from the Edmonton Arts Council. This is The No Normal, a New Music Edmonton production. NME is a not-for-profit arts organization and is dependent on a vast array of sponsors, members, and volunteers. Funding and support for this season's presentations, including this podcast, has been provided by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SoCan Foundation, Alberta Gaming and Liquor, the City of Edmonton, and CJSR Radio. We thank all of them for their generosity and continued commitment to recognizing the vital role that the arts play in our lives. Thanks also to the members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton. To the artists whose work is the reason we come together, and of course, thank you for joining us.
Among the artists presented in our 2020-2021 season was audiovisual duo Instant Places. Originally from our region, Laura Cavanaugh and Ian Burrs now reside in Quebec. The duo has an international following and a vast roster of collaborators. New Music Edmonton had the pleasure of presenting Instant Places for a live performance in March, as well as part of our online improvisation workshop outreach series. Laura Cavanaugh and Ian Burrs recently spoke with NME's Caitlin Sean Richards. Yeah, Instant Places came up because uh, for a lot of our early uh, work together, we really worked with uh, local localities. We would go to a place and we would uh, take photographs and videos and make field recordings and make a composition, audiovisual performance um, based on that place, based on those images and sounds that we captured in that place. But the idea also is very ephemeral. It's it's nothing lasting. It's uh, it's a performance, or it's a possibly highly compressed video that's up on our website. Because back in those days, we had these tiny websites. Every the videos had to be like one megabyte in size, so everything was very compressed and and um, instant in a way. When I was reading your statement, the idea of a self-contained visual space, I thought was something very interesting. I mean, this time is different, you know, because we, we have the COVID and so there's all kinds of restrictions, but these restrictions also can open up possibilities because um, part of, I think, you know, the philosophy behind Instant Places was a kind of activating and, a, you know, a mobility and an activation and of situations and elements and uh, and possibilities, you know. So it hasn't really changed in the fact that um, our work has been digital for, you know, over 20 years. It's actually, it's, it's not really that different for us in, in, in a lot of ways because we've been doing telematic broadcasts for about 20 years now. So, you know, we have been, even on different projects, you know, if we're in Tokyo, then we do live internet broadcasts from Tokyo you know, to maybe a Calgary radio station, maybe a London, UK radio station, and also out to the net. So always experimenting and exploring, because place is also pretty ambiguous too, because it's space, and it means space and it means time. And so it's also being in different locations and inviting other people to play with us in those locations and maybe playing with other people in other locations. And so I think, you know, part of the digital has always been an element of that and broadcasting and time and spaces have always been elements of that. The difference is during this time, we're forced into that kind of situation. We can't get together physically. So actually, a lot of the tools that we've been using for the last over 20 years are actually very natural to our natural way of working. And because a lot of our, our place, you know, some of our pieces, because they are digital, digital pieces, they are actually generative works. So they're, they're digital works that are actually activated in real time in the software that we work with. So then it's very easy for us We've done several in installations that had different kinds of iterations during the COVID time. You know, a gallery or a festival can actually just tap into our live digital installations and run them in different formats. So, you know, uh, for Nuit Blanc in Saskatoon, you know, they could just tap into that, that digital communication and have the audio and visual outdoors through their speakers and on the surfaces of their buildings 
or, you know, in Des Moines in Quebec, they had little tiny radios that they put outside that people could just come and they could turn on the radio or they could listen live from home. And the visuals were in the window, so as walkers by, and it's all live. It's software that is generating live improvisation, live random choices, because those are built into the way that we work and, the, you know, with experimentation, with improvisation, with um, activation. Would you say that chance is a big part of that process? Working with the software, a lot of times we don't necessarily have a really clear endpoint that a lot of times accidents while working with the software or mistakes um, will lead us in different directions. They uh, kind of in a dialogue with the machinery, the machine is leaning one way and you're trying to lean back the other way and you sort of create this uh, kind of dynamic. So chance is part of it. And then shaping the randomness is really important so that while these random things are happening, you're constantly, your aesthetics are always being challenged. And at the same time, you have an idea of the things that you like and you're trying to shape that randomness into these areas that are more likely to create these pleasing out outcomes. So it's a kind of shaping of the, of the chance. How does improvisation change for you when you're working with musicians or other, I guess, interdisciplinary artists live versus when you're in sort of your self-contained space? It depends on the different in individuals and what every individual is bringing to that. You know, people that we generally want to work with are people that bring who they are and and what they do and their kind of experiences, very individual. Because even with improvisation, like um, even for Ian and I, we, we don't necessarily listen to each other. Work is very individual and very interested in individuals and what it is that they contribute because we're not very much into really telling people what to do or what they need to do. We don't do that much collaboration work, really. We do with certain individuals and come together for certain situational kinds of things, but um, with every individual, hopefully just bringing who they are and what they want to contribute. There's not really much of a dialogue. Either you show or you don't show for anything. So sometimes people show and sometimes they don't show. Contributation, you know, extends to kind of just general consciousness, just being there and uh, willing to be there. You know, you can uh, be just sitting there with your cat. It doesn't matter. But you are there, just like audience, what you show up with and what you bring, what an audience brings to any kind of a situation that we call performance or whatever we want to call it. An individual also has that responsibility that they affect the space in which they're occupying. It's interesting. You mentioned the cat, Laura, because an interesting thing, uh, we've been for the last year, we're coming up to our first anniversary pretty soon of working every week with the Glasgow Improvisers Orchestra who've been doing this online Zoom practice basically and uh, it's been an interesting process and one interesting thing is that you're brought into people's domestic spaces so you see their cat or their dog and a lot of times pre-pandemic if you're in an improvising music scene for instance so there's a gig and you go to this place but everyone leaves their domestic situation behind and they're in this sort of space of, I'm at an improvising music gig, and it's a much more intimate thing, actually, with Zoom. You'd think it would be opposite, but in a way, it's more intimate because people are kind of more vulnerable. They're in their domestic space, and it does create a little bit of an openness that's a lot of times a scene. People have their game face on. They're worried about how they fit into the hierarchy, supposed hierarchy of something in this scene and and that kind of gets left behind i think and it's been a really interesting year and we have an idea that for the one year anniversary we're going to make a collection of screenshots and recordings and kind of make a bit of an archive uh, to honor all that work that the people have been doing that host that and also play quite regularly you have quite an archive of your work on the website so would that be a great place um, for people to view online yeah i think we always try to have a link to our website. These days, a lot of more current stuff just happens on Facebook. The flow of things is kind of Facebook. And yeah, I guess that's just the way things work now. What are the different platforms you're presenting on with New Music Edmonton this season? For the, the live performance, uh, we want to really explore with um, 
the Zoom and the live, and uh, we wanted to do it live and uh, with multi-camera kinds of uh, views and also using uh, Max MSP for different kinds of uh, aug augmented kind of um, visual activity and stuff. And also different kinds of instrumentation as well, you know, um, you know, from modular synths to, uh, you know, analog and digital and modular synths and acoustic instruments and sort of throwing that into, into the mix of the uh, audio play. It was really good to sort of activate all those things for, for a live performance for the new music Edmonton. And also the workshop too is a lot of those elements we use when we're in person, but also we've been doing uh, with um, different groups of people and the, and the Glasgow Improvisers Orchestra. It's just really nice to be able to play with people, you know, and in the sense that we can all be activated, you know, that we're not waiting for something to end. You know, we just create new beginnings and activate new availability of possibilities. There's new things that you can activate and new ways of thinking and basically any kind of shift or move, movement that, that happens on this planet, which is continual, is that you have to make adjustments. You have to find new ground. You have to find new ways of thinking. And, and we also have the accessibility and access of different kinds of uh, new technologies and how do they work together? How can you extend them? How can you make new instruments? How can you make new sounds? How can you, how can you imagine things in a, in a new way? And then how can you share with others the imagining of the possibilities of activities on this planet? And how can we sort of celebrate that? Because waiting is you know, waiting is good sometimes when you need to wait, but how long are you going to wait for? And what are you waiting for? Because that, that, that denotes that you have some kind of idea about what's going to be at the end of these transitions. And they may not be what your expectations are. So to move with things and to learn to, to play with them and to uh, have new kinds of thoughts and compassions towards the human condition is probably more interesting. So we're also um, working on a, a new piece for New Music Edmonton, which will be a, another uh, um, a live audiovisual kind of piece that uh, it's a, be a generative piece because we're interested in, in uh, the software, like improvisation, spontaneous uh, with audiovisual environments and and accessibility, you know, you can pick it up with your phone. You can transmit it to a radio. You can transmit it to a gallery. What are the multiplicity of possibilities of that iteration of a art project and the transformation into different kinds of modalities? What can happen with that? We're working on that generative work that actually lives on the internet, being uh, driven by JavaScript. So there's a basically just a JavaScript application that sits on the internet. And as soon as you load the page up, it starts generating audio and visual material. And so that's uh, the uh, the branch project that we're going to be uh, launching in, in September, uh, flavopunk.js. So it's kind of a branch project, I guess, of uh, what we did for New Music Edmonton that will just live on the internet. People can visit it whenever they want. And Flavo Punk refers to an organism that adapts to different environments. Is that sort of the idea behind it? Because I really like the idea that you're talking about adaptation and growth and transformation mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and regeneration. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess kind of popping up in different spaces too. Yeah, and also like like with the lichen too. I mean, I mean because uh, you know this organic life form, and I think we both work very very organically. You know, we're very process orientated, but also um, with the lichen is that they're they're very self sufficient. Actually, they uh, they don't feed off their hosts. <laughs> they, they actually transform energies like airs and and waters and stuff. They're quite unique. And I think like humans are unique, <laughs> you know, but there's so much to learn with um, the different ways in which nature uh, works. Yeah, especially as we're experiencing loss of habitat in nature and that, I guess, sort of thinking about the life of an artist. Um, I think I remember in like 1982, I did a small installation at the Weinloss building with uh, answering machines uh, that were infinite looping. Like that was the only 
really broke all the time, and that was the technology I had, but it was basically creating this phasing generative sound situation with three answering machines that were looping out of phase with each other. And basically that's kind of what we've always done. Even before computers, we were working, always trying to trying to make these, working with the tools that we had, which a lot of times were pretty low-fi. Or, but when we got a computer, we I think the, the one of the really seminal things, a couple of seminal things, one, uh, Beams I did a workshop. It was like 96 or something uh, with Max MSP, and that was Matt Rogolsky did one with Super Collider. And Laura, remind me the name of the person from Winnipeg that did the Max workshop, Ken Gregory. Ken Gregory, yeah. Yeah, and that opened up a whole world. It was like, like I was, I'd always sort of hated computer music before that. I couldn't get it at all. I'd never heard anything that I liked. And Matt Rogolsky did a performance at Beams, at the Beams Festival, where he just had an AM radio running through a super collider patch. And it was just unbelievably, amazingly gorgeous. And that to me was the evidence that it's there. You can work with computers. You can make this really great, exciting music. So yeah, we just, we got Max almost as soon as we had a laptop and started using it immediately. Um, I think I used it. I used it in a performance the first week after I got my first laptop. <laughs> yeah, no waiting. But a lot of the, the development that we did, like when we basically gave up a, a permanent home in, uh, I guess, 2005. And so we were just on the road all the time, making pieces all the time. And that was really like learning on the job. The, uh, the way that digital audio and video was developing was happening at the same time that we were just out there working all the time. It was, we were absorbing these new things and using them immediately as they're happening. And that was a really valuable experience, I think, to just really have that intense period of, of work and learning, but always input turns to output instantly in all instant places. It's, um, it's just happening. It's a flow that's happening. Do you see any sort of division in labor between what you each do? I think that there isn't a d division anymore about, you know, about who does the visuals and who does the audio and stuff like that is that we've both been living in these uh, audio visual environments and um, and we both explore them. We explore different elements of visual arts, whether that's digital, whether that's analog, whether that's painting, whether that's drawing, whether that's photography. We both do a lot of photography for a lot of the instant places, uh, pieces for years. We used photography because, you know, we were in different cities all over the world and we were wandering around and seeing what we could see. And, and uh, so we did a lot of photography and we also did a lot of field recordings all over, you know. We don't have designated jobs in in our realm. I mean, it's it's what an individual really feels like doing and what excites them. And sometimes one person is more of an organizer, and that may happen for a few years, and then the other person is the organizer. It's what organically happens in the process. And because you aren't both always at the same kind of place at the same time, is that it's something that fluctuates all the time and and requires a lot of adaptability sometimes it's it's not good to say someone isn't you know one person is really good at this and another person is not well if that's the case then maybe the person that is not so good at something can have enough room to explore that and develop because inevitably about learning and experiencing new kinds of situations that excite your mind and allow you to grow and think in different ways. And that means learning. That means trying. As uh, <laughs> yeah. One of the guests at uh, Glasgow Improvisers Orchestra was this fellow from Kenya. And uh, one of his sayings is, trying is learning. That's quite nice. <laughs> Watching uh, some of your pieces that you have online, um, you can kind of see how the audience is almost like their image is literally brought into mm. your works. Um, do you find that it's important for you to be able to be present at any point to visit your installations and and see how the audience is interacting? Or is that something you kind of entrust with the audience as kind of extending the life of that piece? Yeah, the um, the gallery installations we've done, they usually was like super intense couple of weeks where we're still actually building the piece 
in the space, you know, reacting to the echoing in the room and, and how the visuals look on the wall. And yeah, super intense two weeks. And then you get maybe one day to actually hang out with the piece when it's, you know, quote, finished. And then you have to go back home. So you don't get a chance really to hang out. And uh, the opening is always a little bit different because people are visiting and talking and, you know, what openings are like. You do get some sort of a sense of how people are responding, but it's not like what someone would get when they're just by themselves in the gallery and really being able to zone out and get lost in the piece. So, yeah, we kind of miss that. Like, you go back home after the installation and it's like sending your kid off to summer camp or something. It's like, well, what's, you know... What is what you're doing now, sort of thing. That's just part of the deal. How would you define generative artwork? Everybody has different interpretations of uh, for their situational thing or for their mindset or whatever. Generative works for us are works that are living, like organic. They're, they're technological, but they're also organic in a sense in the process in which they. Um, operate is that we like to think of them as living, breathing things. You know, we like to uh, think of them that are things that are part of the environment. We really like when we um, create these pieces that they can live in somebody's home. <laughs> you know, that, that somebody can just, you know, they can be working away. Uh, you know, sometimes we get messages from people and they're working away on things at home or in their studio and they, they have the works going, that they can carry these installations into whatever kind of environment that they want. You know, and they can just have visual or they can just have audio. They can, they can take it to work with them or they can be at home with it or they can be outside with it or it can live in different kinds of situations. And it's exciting when people find new situations that implement the pieces into. Generative work for us is, is something that is a living organism that has different kinds of iterations and possibilities unforetold yet, you know, so a living kind of organism, I think, that's process orientated and yeah, part mutable. Of the for us is that we want to be surprised. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And so I, I think, that's you know, what that's it when it yeah. surprises us with what it's doing. How would you describe, for instance, a live instant places experience for someone who might not be familiar with your with your art? Boy, yeah, that's a tough one too because it's always different, and we want it to be different. Yeah, I mean, I feel sorry for anyone that would think they, they were some sort of fan of ours because we ain't gonna do <laughs> what we did before. <laughs> so you know, I mean, it's always new. The audience is such an integral part of a live performance for us. It's being created by everybody that's in the room. And a lot of times successful in, in smaller venues where there's real physical sort of connection with, with people. So that speaking for the live performances, the attention of the audience is so, so important to what's happening with us while we're performing. The most wonderful situations are, are really when Everybody in the room is being heard and seen and experienced. Hard idea I keep thinking about is that that we all own kind of creative thinking and we're all part of that, you know, is that sometimes it's very hard to get away from designating people as the musicians, the visual artists, the, you know, is that I'm very interested in, you know, how that there's more activated responsibility about that we all as human individuals own creativity and wonder and insight and intelligence and intuition and freedom. So I like the idea that everybody is designated in the room to be transformative.
That was an excerpt from Step 6 through 7 of Many Stars by audiovisual artists Laura Cavanaugh and Ian Burrs, also known as Instant Places, that was taken from a performance done for Kunstradio in Vienna in early 2021. Thank you to Catherine Bevan, Suzette Chan, Instant Places, and Caitlin Sean Richards for participating in Episode 9 of our podcast series, the penultimate episode of this season. Watch for our season finale in August. A reminder that news about special programming and events can be found at newmusicedmonton.ca, along with our streaming podcast archive and other multimedia works featured in the series. And be sure to explore the eclectic programming of our partners at CJSR Radio. The No Normal Podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton and is produced and hosted by me, Oscar Sebart.